as we continue our work, working through this book, this letter of John to the church in general, the late part of the first century. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter, six, of chapter 4, excuse me. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, who, which you heard it was coming and now is in the world already. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God's. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, I think I know what I'm talking about this week. <laughs> If you missed last week, I did not know what I was talking about. Um, this morning, what I want to talk about is believing the truth is one of the ways that John says, you know, you know Jesus. There are three tests that John repeats over and over again in this book. Three tests. There's a doctrinal test. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe rightly about Jesus? There's an obedience test. Are you obeying the commandments of God? And there's a love test. Are you loving your brothers? These are the three tests they are not the means by which you are saved. In fact, they are, in fact, they are not the grounds of your assurance. Ultimately, the grounds of your assurance is the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But these are tests to help you see and discern, to give evidence that God's spirit, that you know Jesus, that you, are, have, a, you have faith in him, that you're trusting him. And so there's a doctrinal test, an obedience test, a love test to help you grow in assurance. And John wants us, we come back to a doctrinal test this morning that John's going to point to. And John wants us to, he has a great desire as a good pastor for his readers, for those he considers his sheep, his flock, his brothers and sisters in the Lord, to, to, to stay true to the faith, to stay true to the truth, and don't be swayed away from that which is truth. And so John in this text, in verses four, 1 through 6 of chapter 4, is seeking to protect us and guard us in the truth. And it's in, in some ways, I want to look at it this way. John essentially says, I'm going to guard you from the truth, and it's as easy as one, two, three. You've heard of knowing your ABCs, right? You got to know your ABCs. Well, when you guard the truth, you, already got, you also got to know your one, two, threes, right? Math is important when it comes to objective truth, right? This is an issue we kind of deal with this morning, Two plus two has suddenly stopped meaning four in our culture. You gotta know your one, two, threes. And so John, his desire to protect them from walking away from the truth, of being drawn away from the truth, he gives us his readers one, two, three. First is this, he gives them one prop proposition, one or two tests, and three declarations. One proposition, two tests, and three declarations. We'll, we'll start with the proposition 
or the presupposition is actually how I have it in your notes. Point one is this, one overarching presupposition about the truth. A presupposition. Here's the presupp- there's a presupposition that Christianity has. And that John, it's not, you may not be deliberate. It may be something that you miss, but it runs throughout. It's a presupposition that he sees and holds to throughout this text. And that's this. He comes and he claims. He says, listen, you've got to test the spirits because there are out there those who will speak the truth and those who will speak falsehood. There are prophets who will come and lie and tell you things that are not true. And there are those who will come and teach you, primarily apostles as we'll see, are those who come to teach you the truth. But there is a presupposition that undergirds that claim that there are those who teach truth and those who teach falsehood. And what is that presupposition? Presupposition is this, is that there is such a thing as exclusive truth claims. There is such a thing as truth. If you're gonna have teachers who teach the false, who teach things that are lies, that are untrue, and you have others who teach truth, the presupposition is that there is actually something out there that is objectively and exclusively truth. That by it being truth, things that are the opposite of it are therefore false. So presupposition are things that you assume beforehand. And John is assuming, and you see it even articulated in his writings, that the presupposition that he's functioning off here, that we, even the means that he can warn us by, about false prophets and false teachers, is because he thinks that there's exclusive truth claims. We're going to spend, actually, I think 60% of our time, 70% of our time this morning on this, on this issue First is this one presupposition about the truth. Now, this presupposition of John's that there is actual truth and there is actual lies, there's actually things out there that are false, is a presupposition that goes against the spirit of the age, to use the terminology of John. This goes against the religion of our day. For lack of a better word, I'll simply call it pluralism. This is a worldview. It's a religion of sorts, a way of thinking. And pluralism has a presupposition as well. And it's this, you cannot possibly claim, they would say, you cannot possibly claim that your religion is the only true religion, that you have one truth. And so when pluralism looks at passages like John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the the being a definitive article, which means I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life, they have a problem with that. In a, in a watershed book called The Gospel of Pluralistic Society, a man named Leslie Newbigin, who's become famous in pastoral circles, he was a, a missiologist in which he was both a missionary and he studied the practice of what it looks like to proclaim the gospel in different cultures. But he said this. He said, the gospel is news of what has happened. The problem of communicating in a pluralistic society is that it simply disappears into the undifferentiated ocean of information. It simply or only represents one opinion among a million of others. And it cannot be the truth, since in a pluralistic society, truth is not one, but many. It may be true for you, but it cannot be true for everyone. And therefore, to claim that it is true for everyone is simply arrogance. It is permitted as one opinion among many. Now, to be accepted in the religion, into the religion of pluralism, you have to agree to these two things, a foundational belief and a foundational ethic. The foundational belief of pluralism is this, that all religions or all worldviews are equally valid paths to God. Or to put it another way, all religions have some aspect of truth, but none have the whole truth. You following me? And I would say this is the religion of today. This is the spirit of the age, but that you breathe this in wherever you go. The foundational ethics, so that's the foundational belief. 
of pluralism is that all religions have some aspect of truth, but none have the whole truth. The foundational ethic of pluralism is this, because no one has the only way to God or no one has the whole truth, then there are two ethical implications for this. First, or one main ethical implication, that you shouldn't try to convert others to your belief system. That that is no, no, no. That you cannot say that your belief system is superior to other people's. In other words, you can't go to somebody and say, hey, your belief system is faulty and here's the truth. The second thing you cannot do is you cannot bring your religion or your version of religion into the public square or into the public discourse. By the way, before I get too much further, almost everything I'm saying here in this first point is from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. If you're, if you're if, or somebody who enjoys studying apologetics, I would strongly encourage you to get this book. I, much of these thoughts come directly from him or are stolen from him in some way, shape, or form and put in my own words. At first, you shouldn't try to connect. The ethic of pluralism is you should not try to convert other people to your truth and claim that your truth is superior and that you should leave your truth at the door when you go out into the public discourse. This is the claim, right, of separation of church and state and the way it's defined now is that you cannot bring your religious system, your institutional religion, and the values of that system into the society. In fact, in the religion of today, the greatest evil, and in fact, what they would see as the main barrier to peace in the world is religious exclusivity. Is if you say, I have the truth and you do not, that is the greatest barrier to peace. And by the way, what you'll hear, what you actually hear today is, it's not, they won't say religious exclusivity. What they'll say is religious extremism. And they'll, they'll point to ISIS. But in reality, in reality, what they actually mean is religious exclusivity. They're pointing to any institutionalized religion that claims to have exclusive truth claims. And this is why so many countries in the world, it is not illegal to be a Christian. You are not going to be persecuted for being a Christian. This is how most of Western Europe is. And in fact, this is how the state of Israel is. It is not illegal to be a Christian there, but it is illegal to proselytize, to try to convert other people to your religion, to try to convert other people to the truth of Christianity. And so that's the strategy that they say is, listen, you got to leave your truth at home. It's fine for you to celebrate and believe these things. We won't, we won't mistreat you because of that, but you can't bring it into the public square. You have to confine it in that way. I found it this week, and this may or may not be true, but I thought I saw this on the news. I think the Freedom From Religion group is now suing Carrollton High School because we, they, they, they have prayers before uh, football games or at various other sports activities. But this is, this is part of this. This is the down, downwind from this. That you have to relieve, you have to leave your religion, you have to relieve your worldview. If it's institutionalized as any kind of religion, you have to leave it at your house. Now, how do we counter, and how is John countering this foundations of pluralism here? Well, let me just say this. First, well, let's walk through this and counter each of these statements. First, the foundational belief system of pluralism. They say, let's all agree that all religions are equally valid paths to God. The issue of saying that is here's the problem is it saying such a statement is in itself a truth claim. It is in itself a foundational belief claim that says that it's taking their worldview and bringing it to the public square and pushing it upon others. You say, why should I believe that? You may ask that question to somebody. Why should I believe that we have to leave all, all, that all, all truths kind of lead to God equally or you cannot make any kind of foundational exclusive tr claims? Why should I say that? Well, often what they'll use, and the classic illustration is this, is they'll talk about this, is that none of us have a, a, a handle on the truth. 
All of us come from a different perspective, and that's true, but we all have only a part of the truth. And the, and the illustration that is often used is that of three blind men who are grabbing on an elephant, in which one grabs the tusk, and he's going, it's really smooth, and it's really hard. And he's describing, and he's describing the whole elephant based on what he feels in the tusk. And another guy's grabbing the trunk, and he's saying it's really kind of frumpy, and it's really long. And so he's describing, like, if, if this is how, how the truth is or who God is. They're describing God. They, they, they have their whole experience is based on what they can feel right there. And another guy is grabbing a tail. He says it's really furry, and it switches back and forth. And it's really skinny and long. They have these various descriptions. And what, you, what, what the person who gives this illustration would say is none of them have the whole truth. They all have a part of the truth. And therefore, none of these guys can claim to say that they have the whole truth. Now, Leslie Newbikin, who was, again, we go back to him, he talks about this and how he, he kept hearing about this illustration when people would tell him that he couldn't bring his exclusive truth claims into the public sphere. And he said, suddenly it hit him at this, that those who were giving this illustration, that they were actually, they were actually not giving the illustration as being one of the blind men, as they were giving the illustration as somebody who could see, as somebody who was claiming to say that I have the whole picture of the elephants. I know that this guy's wrong and that he's only holding the, the tusk or this guy only has a part of it because he's only holding the snout or this guy's only holding the, the tail. But this person, by his own illustration, is claiming to say, I have the, the exclusive knowledge that I know everything about the elephants. And therefore, I know to say that this guy can't say everything. I, I know that this guy only has part, part of the truth and this guy only has part of the truth. Well, in order to say that, you have to say, I have the whole truth. I have the whole elephant within my sights. The point is this, when you say no one has a superior take on spiritual reality or a, spirit, a, a the superior take on truth or the superior take on who God is and how to get to God, you're actually making a truth claim. You're actually saying, I see the whole elephant and you don't. I have the big picture and you don't. And so when you say you should not convert anybody else to your views, your religious reality, that is in and of itself a religious reality. That is a worldview that you're pushing upon others and trying to convert them to it. You're saying to the guy who's holding the snout, I'm sorry, you cannot communicate that you have the whole truth because I claim to have the whole truth. The second part is the ethics of, of, of pluralism and, and counteracting that. And that is that our religion should not affect our public discourse and our public policy. Let's all leave religion in our private world, the pluralist says. But when we come into the public realm, let's look for some strategies that work. So this whole issue of religion, listen, that's not really helpful. That just divides us. So we need to be pragmatists, right? The, the, the functionality of, of, of pluralism is pragmatism. We just need to find what works. The issue with that is what you believe about the world is going to affect what you think will work and how you think you'll engage with poverty or issues like the disintegration of families. Do you care about families? Do you not care about families? Is it all about the individuals or is it all about the traditional family? Your religious beliefs, your worldviews will affect how the solutions and the strategies that you're gonna go about there. And not only that, but I would say there's gross inconsistencies to those who say, listen, you can't you bring your religion in, but I can bring my, my pluralism into the public sphere. Because here's the issue, they are actually proponing, they're proponing a, a, a religion itself. Because here's the issue, what is religion? You might say religion is a set of beliefs, and that is true. You go to services once a week, but none of that, that's institutional religion. But religion more than that is a, religion is a set of answers to the biggest questions. 
It's your presupposition, your foundational answers to the biggest questions of the world. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is wrong with human beings? These big questions, every worldview. Now, you may not know what your answers are, but you have answers somewhere in there because they've been given to you. And you've accepted it. In some way, shape, or form, you're... The answers to the questions of what is my purpose on this earth and why am I here? You have some belief system down there. You may not be able to articulate them with great clarity or in an institutionalized sort of way, but they are there and you function out of those belief systems. Michael Perry, who is a church and state scholar, uh, Tim Keller quotes him, he's uh, at Way Forest. He actually says the same point along the same lines. He says this, to say religious reasoning must be kept out of the public square because it's faith-based it's, and it's controversial, is itself a faith-based statement, which is incredibly controversial and therefore on its own terms ought to be thrown out. In other words, if you're in the public square and someone says to you, you cannot bring your religion into the public square, you say, that's a religious statement. You're saying that my exclusive truth claims cannot be communicated when you're communicating exclusive truth claims, when you're communi- functioning out of a worldview. Here's where we are. Somebody's saying, where are we? I'll tell you where we are. Everyone has a spiritual take on reality. Everyone has a worldview, and everyone has a religion. Everyone has their answers to the large questions of this world, and we function, whether we know it or not, out of our answers to those questions. So let me drive this home, take this out of the reality of the broader culture and bring it home to the church. The thinking of pluralism has invaded the church in the form of anti-intellectualism and in the form of anti-doctrine. It is a carelessness with right thinking because it is all about what works for me in religion. It doesn't matter what I believe. Do you understand that? That the American evangelical experience has become about what I feel and what works. Therefore, you get every sermon every week is eight ways to change your marriage and nine ways to fix your money problems and 12 ways to parent correctly. Fix my problems. And if it works, then that's cool. That's what religion has become in America. And therefore, we've become anti-intellectual. We've become anti-doctrinaire, anti-theological because we don't actually care about the beliefs that undergird those wonderful statements. We have accepted an overly pragmatic evaluation of churches. We approve or affirm the truth of the teachings of of a preacher based on how we feel about it rather than what the Bible says about that teacher. Therefore, what has been the rise, the rise of churches in America over the last 20 or 30 years has been what has been known as the health and wealth gospel. It is a proclamation in which they go primarily to impoverished communities, both in America and around the world, and they say, your life stinks, doesn't it? If you would just obey God, he will make you rich and wealthy and healthy. Why? Because if you do this, it will work for you this way. And because we don't care about theological underpinnings, with these kind of folks have grown mega churches. In fact, the largest church in America is a health and wealth gospel church in Houston. Joel Osteen, this is what he proclaims. There is, he holds the Bible up and he smiles really big, but he's a false teacher. He's a false teacher. And it's very normal for people to say, doctrine isn't important, it's how you live. It's whether you're a good person. It's whether religion is working for you in some way, shape, or form. And when you say that, you show unbelievable naivete. You show unbelievable naivete. You show a lack of self-awareness. You show, frankly, I would say, a immaturity and a childishness. You would just simply say, oh, I just need a few verses and I'm, it's just me and Jesus and we're good. But the Bible says doctrine is necessary. And John is assuming that there are certain things that are true and that we should hold those truths because the Bible says them. And there are certain people who will enter the church and teach things that are not true. 
Do you know the difference? Do you care about the difference? Or is it all about how you feel? The doctrine is necessary because the Bible assumes that everything is doctrinal. Everything is doctrinal. You can't avoid doctrine. You're filled with doctrine. You're filled with belief systems. And you're either unintentionally swallowing whatever is being provided for you, or you're intentionally evaluating all teaching you hear around the Word of God. We're celebrating the Reformation this week. The, the great the time where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses 500 years ago on the Wittenberg door. And, and, and as Protestants, we tend to think of the Reformation being about justification by faith alone, and that is true. The Reformation was far more about authority. And it was this doctrine was called Sola Scriptura, which the, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the doctrine that is this. It comes from the Bible, and it comes from church tradition. That the Pope speaks ex cathedra. And what Martin Luther was getting up and saying is going, no, 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 no. The only authority in the church is the Word of God. And there began to be this emphasis, and what blew up in the Reformation, what was amazing was this, this grasping on of the priesthood of believers, that you, that you get a Bible in your hands, in your own language, and that you, because the Spirit of God indwells you, can open that Bible, and you can get to know God, and you can evaluate teaching. That you doesn't have to be in Latin, and you don't need necessarily me. It's helpful to have teachers. They're a gift to the church, but that they, they, you have a means of knowing God by reading his, his word. And so are you able to discern the truth? Do you know the word of God? Do you, are you in it enough to know, wait a second, what that guy just said on TV, that's garbage. And I have places to prove it, that that is wrong. So the Bible says there is a doctrine and there's always truth. That is one. One foundational presupposition that John is making. There is truth in this world, and it's found in the Word of God. Doctrine is at the basis of everything, and the way you judge the spirits is based on what they teach, the doctrine that they proclaim. So we come to the two tests then. He says, all right, that's the presupposition. There's a truth out there. Now let's go to the tests. What are the tests of what is true? And he provides two test questions. We'll say they're essay questions, because there's only two, right? You're always like, oh no, two questions. Oh, there's gonna be a lot of writing. It's gonna be a long day. Fortunately, John's pretty quick. Two questions, the first question is this. What is their confession? When you're evaluating the truth, first test question is what is their confession about Jesus? Verses two and three. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This test revol revolves around this. Who do you believe Jesus is? This is where things either go really good or really bad. Was Jesus God in the flesh? Was he an actual human being? Was Jesus actually human? Was Jesus actually God? The teaching of John is that he is the fully God, fully man, the God-man who entered into this world to die for our sins, to save us. And the question is this, are these teachers, what the, the context of what John is dealing with is there are teachers who are entering into the church of the day and they're preaching an anti-gospel. They're preaching a gospel that said that, that they believed the body was bad. And that they said, therefore, Jesus could not have had a human body because God wouldn't take on flesh because flesh is bad. He only appeared to have a body. It only looked like he had a body. So this is not just an outward confession though. Because many of you, many of you profess this and that's good. But you have to understand, this is not simply an outward confession. This is a heart confession. 
that I trust that this is who Jesus is. He is the fully God and fully man. This is intellectual, but it moves beyond that. It's a heart trust that this is who Jesus is, right? There's a couple of warnings about this. Jesus says, demons believe that I am the Christ. So we're not saying that this is the only test of whether you're <laughs> of assurance, but this is a foundation. You have to also remember, right? And in Matthew, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be with me in heaven. So there's more than this, but, so Christianity involves simply more than believing the truth about Jesus and his nature of his humanity and his deity, but it is not less than that. It is the foundation of everything else in that. All right, we gave you some kind of cultural critique this morning. It's kind of a little intellectually and mentally heavy this morning, but we're also gonna give you some, some, some Christology, the doctrine of Christ this morning, because John gives it in clarity. He gives what is the orthodox Christian historic statement on who Jesus is, which is Jesus is God and he's fully man. He's fully God, fully man, two natures in one person. Now let me give you some history. This is where people have historically gone awry. Cults both in the early church and today. There's four main heresies to avoid. Heresies, things that go wrong about your belief about Jesus. So we're gonna give you a little, little theological history evaluation this morning. First, first heresy to avoid is Arianism. Arianism. Arianism said that Christ was not fully divine. He was like God, but he did not share in the essence of God. It's like he, he, he was a really good guy, and he had a lot of the characteristics of God, but he was not fully God. He was not truly God. He was not the essence of the Father. And so what they would say is he's fully human, but he's not fully divine. The next heresy to avoid is this. By the way, Arianism, I would say... Today, most people write the whole Jesus is my homeboy kind of thing from a couple years ago. You remember that, that movement in Hollywood? It's this belief that Jesus is great. He's a really good dude, but he's not God. All right? Docet, docetism was the other early heresy, which comes from the word docane, which means this, to appear to be seen as human. This is the belief of actually what's going on that John is refuting in 1 John, which is this, is that people were saying, Jesus is God, but he's not fully human. He hasn't actually entered into our world. He hasn't taken on our suffering. He hasn't entered into flesh. This is denying the humanity of Jesus. Then there's a, a one called Nestorianism. Nestorianism denied that, that, that Jesus had two natures so that the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus were not entered into one person. They were kind of functioning side by side. They kind of functioned separate from one another. That Jesus is two persons with two natures. So that's essentially what's going on here in one body. Is how they would describe it. And lastly is Eutychianism. Eutychianism advocates for a confusion of the two natures in which, like, like what is it that becomes purple? It's blue and red, right? becomes purple. Anybody remember that from youth group? If a guy and a girl sat next to each other on the bus, the guy's blue, the girl's red, and together they make purple, and everyone would be like, oh, they're making purple. That's what Eutychianism is. No? All right. I was homeschooled. My apologies. Um, we thought women got pregnant if you looked at them. So it's uh, my bad. Red and blue make purple. That's actually what they believe. Where Jesus stops being human and he stops being God and becomes something utterly different. That's some other color. Here, it may be helpful to do, let me give an illustration to help us to think rightly about the doctrine of Christ. Think of it like a bridge. On each side, you have one side of the bridge, you have humanity as the land on one side and the other side is the deity. In Arianism, in, the, in Orthodox theology, the humanity, the full humanity, the full deity of God is bridged. They're connected perfectly together and fully. In Arianism, the bridge starts with and affirms Jesus' humanity, 
and it, but it doesn't go all the way to his deity. And docetism, the bridge starts with Jesus' divinity, but doesn't reach all the way to his humanity. And Nestorianism, the bridge starts on each side with Jesus' humanity and deity, but they don't seem to meet in the middle. And lastly, in Eutychianism, it's a floating bridge in which they're, to, they're together, but neither of them connect to humanity or to deity. All right, that's your, your history, your historical theology lesson. Some of you are like thrilled by that, and others of you are like, shoot me now. We'll move on. Here's what I want you to see. Notice everything revolves around the sun. What you believe about Jesus matters. In fact, in, in, in 1 John 2, 23, it, we see that if you deny the Son, you deny God the Father. 1 John 2, 23 says this, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Who confesses the Son has the Father also. And here in chapter 4, what we see is that if you get Jesus right, you also have the Holy Spirit. So if you get Jesus wrong, you have no Holy Spirit and you have no God the Father. If you get Jesus right, you get the Holy Spirit and you get God the Father. He is the means by which he has invaded and entered our space. He has become human. It is God has become flesh so that through him we might have intimate dwelling with the full Godhead. With the full Godhead. This means that in the monotheistic religion of the world, we do not worship, we do not all worship the same God. Because what you say about this God matters. What you say about this God matters. What you believe about Christ matters. So I've been reading a lot about the Catholic Church because I was speaking at this Reformation thing this week, but Vatican II is this humongous theological document that came out in the middle part of the 20th century by the Catholic Church where they took an incredible shift. And Vatican II was a PR shift. It was going to say, we are no longer going to make truth claims really exclusive anymore. They didn't deny any of the truth claims that they made, but we're going to put a new face on Roman Catholicism, which is this. We're going to embrace everybody. Which is why if you want to understand Roman Catholicism today, you have to understand the Pope of the day who runs around and says, Muslims are our brothers. The problem is they don't believe in the same God. They, they may say they have a monotheistic religion, but they don't believe in the Trinitarian God, and they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who's God in flesh, who took on humanity to save us. It would be like this. It would be like if you're having a conversation with a friend from high school, and you go, hey, remember Greg? Yeah. You remember Greg? And your friend goes, yeah, he was 5'2 with black hair. And you go, actually, no, he was 6'4 with blonde hair. Huh. You mean Greg? Greg, he was really smart. You're going, no. Greg was a jock. He hardly ever went to class. Right? We're talking, and then you go, okay, we, we are talking about two different Gregs here, aren't we? The way certain monotheistic religions talk about Jesus and the way Christianity talks about Jesus, they are two different Gregs. They are not the same. And so it matters. So that's the first question. Is Jesus, you confess Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is fully God, who became fully man to save us from our sins. Second test question is this, and what is the source of their truth about Jesus? Verse five and verse six. John says this about these false teachers, that they are from the world, meaning the world that is evil, the spirit of the age, all they believe. Therefore, they speak from the world, they love the things of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What is the source of the teaching of false teachers? The things of this world. The things that they value are the things of this world. The devil's domain is, speaks out of a worldview and spiritual inspiration. They speak satanic sermons. It may come across that looks like a sermon from the Bible, but the, the Satan knows the Bible better than you do. 
And so he can manipulate it and utilize it. And they, they do it, they even use the teachings of scripture in order to, to push a propaganda, a spirit of the age that says you want the kingdoms of this world, the things of this world. The false teachers were, in this day were invading the church. They were invading the church. Their value was the things of the world. They care about the earthly, momentary kingdom over an eternal, heavenly kingdom that was going to come down. They cared about physical things over eternal things. And when they speak of the vows of the world, what happens? When you, when you tickle people's ears and you say, I'm going to give you what you want, what happens? They come running. This is why the health and wealth gospel is exploding across the world. Because if you create a religion that says, if you just do a few of these things, God will make you rich, you go, oh, that works for me. I want to be rich. I want to be healthy. I want my life to be really great. No. So what we find is the world runs from. This is why you can't actually, actually assess the value of the truth of what someone says by the crowd that follows them. By the crowd that follows them. The source, the source of the true teachers is what? The source of the false teachers is the things of the world, the values of this world. The source of the true teachers, it says this. It says an almost, John says an almost arrogant thing here. He says, we are from God. And if you listen to us, then you're of the truth. Well, we have to remember who John is. John is an apostle. John is speaking the truth. In other words, he is saying those who are the true prophets listen to the apostles' teaching. Those who, un- and arise at the beginning of, of John, in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, I'm writing to those who have believed what they first heard. In other words, what they believed is the account of the apostles who came and proclaimed what they saw in Jesus. That Jesus was fully God, that he was fully man, that he died on the cross to save us from our sins. And where do the apostles, where do you find the apostles' teaching? Where do you get it? In the word of God. They're the ones who wrote the New Testament. And John will make it clear that one test of a true prophet and a false prophet is whether the prophet believes the Bible to be true or not and proclaims and teaches that Bible truthfully. The point John is making is those who know God through confession of Jesus as the incarnate Christ and as Savior, they listen to those who are with him. Though those who, who, who communicate say, hey, we saw this with Jesus, who are firsthand testimony and witnesses, where those who are commissioned by him, they believe what they have to say. So they don't take hold of some solid theology that says, well, we got Jesus plus something. We got the Bible plus some other teaching or some tradition. No, and they don't believe in some Jesus minus something or the Bible minus theology. No, this raises a very important practical question. How can we listen to the apostles 2,000 years later? By reading God's word, and I also say this, by listening to preaching and teaching that cares about God's word. Listen, this is always a difficult place for me to write to, I mean, I'm in the place of John. I, I, listen, whether you're at this church or not, what you need to find, if you ever move away, if you're a college student and you're here and you like what you see here, the foundation, one of the core values of this church is this, is that we wanna preach and teach through the Bible. And we wanna go verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter. Yes, we will stop at times and preach topical sermons in order to catch the whole of what the Bible says about something. But the whoop and wharf of the teaching is to say, we want to go verse by verse because why? We care about the word and what it says above anything and everything else. Therefore, we have to come to passages like this to talk about the Antichrist because I don't want to do that. I know it's, it's far, it would be much easier if I came here and talked about your parenting and your marriage and your money because that's the felt needs that you walk in here with. But if you don't get this, those things won't be fixed. You don't get the truth of Jesus, those things don't come with it. So be careful who you listen to. 
Who are you listening to? Now, it may not just simply be who you're listening to in your sermons, who who podcasts you're listening to or what magazines you're reading. What news channels are you listening to? If you were to evaluate your social media feed, what does it say about what you want to listen to? Are they communicating the truth? Or is it lies? It is disconcerting for me. It is disconcerting for me that I think the vast majority of American evangelical Christians get their gospel from Sean Hannity than they do from God's word. God bless them, but he doesn't love Jesus. And therefore, they get an Old Testament ethic that is proclaimed through American traditional values instead of a gospel ethic. Now, some of you younger folks, you're getting your news source from somewhere else. John Stewart doesn't speak the truth either. I know he's not around. Colbert. They don't have the gospel. But are these the things that you're letting influence your life? You see, the Bible is going to push on your progressivism and your conservatism. It's going to push on your righteousness and your unrighteousness. It's going to push back and forth. If you want to know, you're going to, if you want to know whether you're understanding the Bible rightly, you're going to find that it annoys you sometimes. And that it calls you out. That's one. That's two. So we got the presupposition. We got the two tests. Now we get three declarations real quick. Real quick. Verse four. And this is the gospel. Three declarations from the truth. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Three declarations. We'll walk through them systematically. The first one is you are from God. What an unbelievable statement. He starts out with what a, what a pastoral word, little children, little children. It's one of his favorite terms that John uses, little children, you are of God. What a great emphasis. You yourselves, you yourselves are of God. He is now your source, that he has come to live inside. You're no longer of the world, you're of God. One of the ways you can know that you love God is you, ra- you would rather hear the word of God and understand that than hear the things of the world. Do you, man, I hate to be so push on you because it's so frustrating because I, I mean, it's so hypocritical. But would you rather read God's word than watch a movie? Would you rather hear the voice of the Father? Little children, you are from God. The little children who are from God, they long to hear the Father's voice. The dog whistle of this world's teaching no longer controls you, but it's the voice of God who speaks most profoundly in your ear and you listen to it. And some of you need to hear this declaration, though. The good news in this declaration. You belong to God. You see the standard by knowing? Your source of your life is God himself. Listen, there are other standards to look at during other weeks, but this week what I want you to look at and go back to the very basic one. Do you believe that Jesus is God? He was a man who was fully God who died for your sins. If you believe that, then I can tell you with the confidence John does that you are from God and you're God's child. Some of you need to embrace that this morning. Some of you need to hear that. To hear that declaration over you of who you are. Because of your profession of faith and because you are the Lord's, there's a second declaration. Second declaration is this, you have overcome. You have overcome. This is a geeky sermon, so we'll stay with the Greek a little bit. That, that terminology, you have overcome, is what is called a perfect tense verb, 
which means this. Perfect tense verbs in the Greek were used to describe a completed action, something that's already happened that affects your current state of being. Do you hear what he's saying? That if you have proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, if he is your God and your Savior, then you have overcome already. Overcoming is not something that gets to be done in the future. It's already happened. It is an intellectual victory that the things of this world, that the teachings of this world will not overcome you. They will not overwhelm you, but you have believed the truth. And it affects your, your current state. It's something that's happened in the past and it affects you are an overcomer right now. And John says this with confidence. Man, we preachers, we want to say, man, we, we don't want to say this because we're afraid for those of you who aren't overcomers. But let me just say it. You, King's Chapel, are overcomers. The world and its lies have not and are not overcoming you. Praise be to God. You need to hear that. Some of you feel like the lies are crushing you. The lies of the family that you came from, the worldview that it wants to drink, draw you back in, you feel like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to that lifestyle. And all the things that, all its, all its philosophy and all its ethics and all the things that are go with it. But no, you have overcome, brothers and sisters. And how do we obtain this victory? Because of the third declaration. Because he who is greater than, than he who is in the world is in you. The greater spirit, the Holy Spirit is in you, and he is greater than he who is in the world. It's implied there by John that the devil and the spirit of this age, it's really great. It's really powerful. I mean, some of the stuff I talked about earlier about the cultural, like, pluralism, you are eating and drinking and sleeping that stuff. It is powerful, and it is everywhere, and it is taking over. John is not saying that we face a weak enemy. He's saying we face a great enemy. But God is greater. And that God is in you. We have a champion and we have a victor, a source of power that all the enemies of hell cannot, combined cannot stand up to. And this, is, this one, this God who lives in you is infinitely stronger and wiser and greater. And where does he reside? In you. In you. It is the power source of your life. By a true and faithful confession of Jesus as Messiah and his Savior, I declare that you are the Lord's. And the Lord lives in you. And he calls you mine. And he says, I have overcome, and you are overcoming through my power. Listen, John Calvin, some of you think that John Calvin just said really hard, cold things. Get this. John Calvin said this, that we can no more be conquered than God himself. You can't be conquered because God lives inside of you. That is great truth. When you are threatened by any deception of the evil one, any temptation, any discouragement, any anxiety or cowardice, remind yourself that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You see, some of you, this is true, some of you are afraid to read hard books. Some of you are afraid to read non-Christian books. Some of you are afraid to read philosophy books to read Christopher Hitchens because you're afraid you're going to be convinced that Christianity is not true. Brothers and sisters, we need people who would engage with those things and trust that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will come to understand the spirit of the age so that I can then speak into this world. You know how we're viewed as Christians? We're viewed as anti-intellectual idiots because since revivalism, since the last part of the 19th century, we have been. And we have said that science doesn't matter, 
We said this philosophy doesn't matter. Listen, we need brothers and sisters who can think and think clearly and trust that I'm going to go into the dark places and I'm going to face, yes, the dark places that are intellectual as well. I'm going to go into the places of academia. We have college students all over this place. You should not be afraid. Take the hard class and step up and speak up in class. You might be crushed. When I was 15 years old, I took my first, I was, I was dual enrolled at a local community college and I took humanities. And I had a guy, I don't even know why we, I, we didn't have a book. The whole point of the class was to bash two things, to bash America and to bash Christians. That was the whole point of the class. It was awesome. Because as a 15 year old kid, it was the first time in my life, I went home and I told my dad, I was like, I have no idea what to say to this person. And he said, okay, here's a logic book. Here's a critical thinking book. Here's a philosophy book. Go to town, little boy. And I got, I got kicked all over the place. But man, it was good for me. Because it rooted my, I had to root myself more deeply in the, the, the answers of Scripture. And say, is this true? Is this true? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The spirit of truth is in you. So don't give up studying and don't stop seeking the truth, seeking the truth in God's word. Don't give up because you have, sh- you have shown in, in the power of God, you can, you will overcome the world's lies. Don't give up because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, and God's going nowhere. You have the Spirit in you to help you discern truth and error. Let me read this, and we'll close. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. I'm going to read the whole thing as kind of a, a way to kind of point us toward the gospel as we close this morning. It's on the screen. For the, world, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, and where is the scribe, and where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach the most silly thing. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. <laughs> he said you're dumb. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, I pray that you would make us gentle as doves and shrewd as serpents. That, Lord, we would not be a people who um, are so insecure about the truth that we hold to that every time someone questions our faith, that we just get angry, (laughs) that we get defensive and prickly, or that we run away. But Lord, I pray that you would make us, make us very shrewd. But God, I pray that you'd also help us to realize that the, the wisdom that you give us is foolishness in the eyes of the world. Because what is wisdom to us 
is a God who takes on flesh and dies on a cross. And what is foolishness to, what is wise to us is a kingdom in which the rich give up their wealth to love the poor. And the wise enter into the lives of the simple. Gracious God, we thank you that you did not leave us in our dumb state, but you came to give us the wisdom of heaven, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we cannot save ourselves, that you have done it for us, and you've come to proclaim to us that you live inside of us. And because of that, Lord, we cannot, we don't have to fear. And because of that, we can open the word of God and we can see that your spirit will help us understand it. Because of that, we have no fear in engaging in the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we know the Spirit of God is there to help us to understand and to know and to communicate the truth of your word. I pray that we go out in the power of that Spirit. In his name we pray.